Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 16th of August, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host today, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands, our very own Debbie Evans, nursing correspondent. And we also have a very interesting and important guest today. But uh, we're going to kick off on matters to do with data protection. Um, over to you, Alex. And uh, the scene is Northern Ireland. Scene there, Brian, because uh, our overseas viewers and a lot of our younger viewers will not be fully aware uh, of just how bad the Northern Ireland troubles got and what the repercussions are to this day. Um, what the gentleman that we're putting on screen now should be known to uh, people of my age and upwards who followed British politics. It's Jerry Kelly, and uh, he's now a member of the Legislative Assembly for Northern Ireland uh, and Stormont, and he is the spokesman of Sinn Féin, the political wing of the provisional IRA, for policing matters. That's enough of a breakthrough in itself because Sinn Féin wanted the abolition of the police when it was called the Royal Ulster Constabulary. It effectively got its way. You now have a new service from 1998 onwards, the Police Service of Northern Ireland. Kelly there was standing at a very iconic gable end, well known to visitors to West Belfast on the Falls Road, uh, which is the hunger striker Bobby Sands with his famous declaration of 1981, our revenge will be the laughter of our children. That's just scene setting because Kelly personally shocked even the British establishment when he became the first actual IRA bomber to be an, a Sinn Féin senior, uh, blowing away any pretense of separation between the two ed entities. He himself now, despite all this, and it's exactly 50 years this year since he bombed the old Bailey and was convicted, um, he is now being threatened by what is being called in the mealy-mouthed way dissident Republicans, which is a phrase that's come about since the end of the Northern Ireland Troubles a generation ago to mean those who are not on board with the British establishment and its vision for a new Northern Ireland. The first splinter group was called the, the uh, Real IRA. Later, you got the new IRA coming to the fore. They have been infiltrated by British secret uh, uh, agents by the security uh, service in the form of um, uh, popularly known as MI5. Um, and that has caused uh, an almighty row because this is actually the third data leak from the police service of Northern Ireland, the only uh, regularly armed constabulary in the British Isles because of the troubles uh, in a week. There'll be more links than just the one we showed on screen in the show notes because the Belfast Telegraph has been pursuing this all week. What they've particularly found is that uh, uh, even after the police in Belfast had their attention drawn to a particular data breach, not the one that got Jerry Kelly, which I'll talk about in a moment, but another one naming 11 um, Northern Irish policemen, including rare names, um, the PSNI didn't do anything to take the breach down. The main breach, however, the one that uh, shocked uh, Kelly and which he called intimidation of him, was that these so-called dissident Republicans, they may be state agents, I'm not going to discount it knowing what I know about the troubles, intimidated Kelly uh, by saying, watch it, we've blacked out the names here, but here's some names of Irish, Northern Irish police officers who collaborate with MI5 um, and uh, who were leaked last week in a freedom of information request. So that's the meat of this. Somebody asked a freedom of information request of the police in Northern Ireland last week. And by mistake, they released 10,000 names in, uh, in a spreadsheet and officer ranks, initials and surnames, not full forenames or Christian names we used to call them, but enough to identify a lot of people. And 40 of these people had a, a field against their names in the spreadsheet that said, has been seconded to the intelligence services. And one of the links, which is not on the slides uh, I provided, but will be in the show notes, goes into more detail on this, that the defense in a current 
case, which is gripping Northern Ireland, about the infiltration by MI5 uh, of these dissident Republicans of the, the new IRA. The defence is now going to subpoena these people whose names it got from the data leak and say, you must come and test what your role is uh, in undermining these dissident Republicans uh, by infiltrating them. So uh, extremely, well, more than embarrassing, life-threatening to many. And you have to ask who benefits from this situation. Is it perhaps the British spook state which uh, stands to gain by not having uh, embarrassing revelations in court, which could now be swept away under the name of, uh, or in the excuse of it's no longer safe because there's a threat to these officers' lives? I wonder. Meanwhile, thank you to Mike Robinson for drawing my attention to this. Uh, Kennedy's law reports on a data breach at the Electoral Commission. There are three takeaways which these legal uh, writers, it's actually a, a fairly uh, young lawyer who's written this sharp article and spotted these things. Three takeaways from this, uh, which you can read on the website for yourself by by following the note, link in the show notes. But particularly from my side, I would point out that whenever you read about hostile actors and hacking, as Mike would be quick to add, and I've seen from my previous GCHQ work, you can never definitively say that it was an overseas uh, a, a raid. Both of these data breaches, obviously the surface thing that we take away from them is your data isn't safe and British government bodies are slapdash with it. Uh, but secondarily, and at a deeper level, if things go wrong and your data is leaked, can you assume that it was really terrorists and Russians who did it or not? Or was it something that was allowed to happen? And look at the language that is used, because often it falls a long way short of an outright claim that it was terrorists or foreigners who actually did the breach and the leak. Uh, going to the U.S. courts now as well, and this is at state level in Montana. Uh, this is an uh, interesting and worrying development at state level, which mirrors something that we've had here in the Netherlands at national level, where the Supreme Court, Oharad, uh, ruled in a famous ruling last year called Urgenda, actually more like four years ago now, sorry, uh, that an NGO with that name, U-R-G-E-N-D-A, uh, was allowed to tell the Dutch government to revise its CO2 emissions targets in the name of the future and the environment because the Dutch government had signed up to the diplomatic instrument called the Paris Accords. You might think this would never go anywhere federally in the US, whether it's Trump or the Biden administration, and you would be right. But at state level, the Montana court, despite being very uh, a conservative state, uh, has uh, enshrined in its constitution, because you have a lot of nature lovers in the northwestern US, that people have a right to a clean environment. And so these youth, youth activists in the case, and the, the link to the full ruling will be in the, the show notes as well, uh, have managed to get a, a state judge to interpret state law as meaning that when the government at state level uh, says we're going to uh, set our environmental targets and tweak the existing act. It's uh, they get a, a judicial slap on the wrist for not considering future environment, future generations' right to a clean environment. So that stuff, that guff, is coming to America as well at state level, and it's uh, Ricky Held versus the state of Montana is the case. If we just hop over the uh, uh, most peaceful border uh, in the world and the longest, the U.S.-Canada uh, border, to the bordering Canadian province of Alberta you'll find that the Federalist has got quite a scoop here that Justice Barbara Romaine, again, she's interpreting Alberta provincial law. Uh, she is, she's not t telling Ottawa what to do with its law. Uh, she has said that all those people, particularly in the province of Alberta, where the churches and the businesses were, were more defiant than in other places in Canada, uh, they uh, have had a conviction which is probably invalid now uh, because the Chief Minister of Health for the province of Alberta uh, Ill unlawfully delegated her decisions to the Cabinet, which she wasn't allowed to do. Uh, lest people get very uh, enthused and think, oh, what a wonderful ruling, the preamble to the ruling states in, 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 in unambiguous terms that it would have been perfectly, perfectly fine to give, give people 
a denial of their constitutional freedoms in the, in Canada that takes the form of the uh, Charter of Rights and Freedoms in the 1980s, if it had been done through the proper route, because of that famous get-out clause that the EU likes as well, and British human rights law also has, namely, it's proportionate and necessary in a democratic and free society. And uh, paragraph 53 of the ruling, you can follow the link on page 18, uh, has the judge in the case saying, I agree with previous case law that it's not reasonable or in accordance with the principles of statutory interpretation to allow the Chief Officer of Health for Alberta to make orders delegated from the cabinet because they're the ultimate decision makers. And right at the end, section 520 says the same in the summing up. That falls woefully short of saying something unlawful or immoral or illegal was done. It just says you didn't follow proper procedure. But it may be enough for Pastor Artur Pavlovsky and a group of other lesser known people uh, to have their convictions and fines quashed, even if it takes several rounds uh, of appeal to do that. Um, just putting on screen for a couple of seconds, the King's Bench ruling there, because, of course, the uh, Commonwealth realms all have a King's Bench, which is supposed to allow direct access to the top ranks of justice for people who've been uh, denied elsewhere. And uh, I think that takes us on to Debbie, but I think you'll want to go back to you, Brian, in case you have any comments on uh, what, what I've taken you through. Uh, well, all of it important, of course. And uh, I, I just want to say on the Northern Ireland breach, as the public are told, uh, things become electronic. It's stored on databases. More and more passwords keep your data safe. The reality always seems to be the opposite with the, these massive data breaches. And of course, the key point you made there was the public at risk. But we do seem to have the ch some chinks in the armour. And uh, let's bring in Andrew Bridgen. Uh, I picked up on this this morning. Um, shocking evidence released also of the cavalier attitude of vaccine safety and vaccines harms back in 1990. Now that caught my attention uh, as I was still serving in the military then and the uh, subheadline, the desert rats used as lab rats. So what was being discussed here? Uh, well, this is the meat of it. It's declassified document. Um, it's of its age because it's clearly typewritten. Uh, I believe that this is a Ministry of Defence document. You may have another opinion uh, Alex, but let's have a look at the meat of what this thing is saying. I haven't covered all the red circled paragraphs, but just to give you a flavour. Um, so paragraph two is talking about the efficacy of the vaccine, and it says it can be enhanced by the simultaneous administration of a licensed whooping cough vaccine or an unlicensed adjuvant subject to the availability of these items. Uh, there's a paragraph which says that the efficacy can, sorry, that should be, can be, can be further increased by giving a double dose of one milliliter, which should, which would cause more pain and discomfort. To speed up the process, this process, uh, license variation or even crown privilege would need to be sought. All that sounds a little bit familiar uh, in view of COVID. And then should option two be agreed, and that's the first one where it's uh, the first one on the right of your screen talking about the efficacy. Should option two be agreed, this would also provide a unique opportunity to obtain human data on the efficacy of this whooping cough anthrax combination. Now, remember that everything being discussed here was being discussed against the background of protecting the lives of troops on the ground. 
against nuclear biological attack, and in this case, anthrax. Uh, but of course, the reality is many, many um, of the uh, military on the ground suffered problems as a result of vaccinations they received. So Andrew Bridgen's point is the truth is beginning to come out here. And um, uh, I, th I think there's some very interesting information. Alex, I'll just come back to you because um, it does seem to me that this is probably uh, um, a Ministry of Defence document, but uh, what are your thoughts? The serial number looks of the same series as I've seen for MOD documents. The date, whether fortuitous or not, is precisely to the day um, 32 years ago, 16th of August 1990. That was in the middle of the ramping up to the Gulf War. Uh, of course, and we know that the United States also was, uh, or rather the, the contractors uh, who supplied the vaccines were extremely keen and I think succeeded in many cases in getting a lot of troops uh, compulsorily inoculated against anthrax at the time. That's the context that people may not remember again if they're younger or, or weren't following the news then. Um, and so you know, many claims have been made. George Webb is one of those recently who's made a big splash talking to Rainer Fulmich about the people behind anthrax vaccines and how they want to use crown prerogative and equivalent in other countries to force people to take unlicensed adjuvants and all kinds of nonsense. Um, whether you can uh, accept the full claims or not, I don't know. But the, the, the bottom line in the US, as it turned out, was that the records of all those veterans went walkies. There's been significant whistleblower claims that the re records were deliberately put uh, in the building in Oklahoma City that was blown up in 1995, just before it's, uh, it met its end as a building. So uh, a horrible pot of nefariousness is all we can say about that. Whether or not one can accept all the claims about the, min the minutiae of the biology, I think even those sympathetic to UK column would argue the toss on those. But Bridgen's been a very active MP recently. Just on the 7th of August 2023, he wrote this to the Prime Minister, now in his capacity as a Reclaim Member of Parliament, still for the same constituency, of course, North West Leicestershire. I believe we can blow that up to uh, a bigger uh, or a bigger resolution. I'm sorry that it's a bit grainy, but all the copies of this that uh, any of the members of the team found were also grainy. So I will read it for those listening in audio only. Uh, by the way, the Canadian case I mentioned, if the audio listeners want to look it up, is Ingram versus Alberta. Here is Bridgen's letter to the Prime Minister. I wrote to the Attorney General, that's the Chief Law Officer for England and Wales, responsible to the government, not to the people. I wrote to the Attorney General on the July the 24th, enclosing details of an allegation of criminal conduct by the MHRA, Britain's Medicines Regulator, with regards to the emergency use authorization and approval, specifically of the Bi Pfizer-BioNTech, COVID-19 vaccines and boosters. Watch Dr. Jorge Landgraber tomorrow at this time, by the way, uh, for an interview in depth I did with uh, with him about the mechanisms of those vaccines, which is quite horrendous. Uh, Bridging goes on, the compliance team in the Attorney General's office, bear in mind this is a law officer for the government, part of the executive, have emailed me to advise that they have resolved, as if they had power to do so, to redirect the matter to who? To the parent body of the MHRA, namely the Department of Health and Social Care. Uh, Bridgen says this is an unsatisfactory state of affairs since the material basis of my alert is that a criminal course of conduct uh, may have been brought about. Notwithstanding this lamentable error of judgment, the matter has now been escalated in, in my, Bridgen's assessment, to that of critical importance because of a peer-reviewed Swiss study that's just come out, uh, which is a, a 1 in 35 chance, a well over 1% 1, 1 chance uh, of heart damage, one of the themes of my interview tomorrow with Dr Landgraber following Moderna which shares with Pfizer-BioNTech the same um, 
uh, technical uh, specifications of how it works, um, which we'll go into in the interview tomorrow. Uh, Bridgen says, given the gravity of this peer-reviewed revelation, and of course he's uh, qualified to understand this given his past, it would appear that Parliament should be recalled, of course August is the break, immediately recalled to review this latest scientific material and to call a halt, halt to the rollout of the booster programme, the very thing Dr Landgraper calls to, for at the end of the interview tomorrow. I request, therefore, Prime Minister, that you declare that such a recall be made in the national interest in order to halt the irreparable harm and avoidable death which will occur if this matter is left unaddressed until we return in September. Okay, Alex, thank you very much for that. And we've got to say it's good to see that there are some MPs, such as Andrew Bridgen, standing up to be counted over this matter. Well, let's uh, move on to our guest. And our guest today is Dr. Chris Flowers. And uh, Debbie, um, an interesting little gathering took place in uh, Cornwall. Uh, I'll hand over to you here. Thank you. Yes, and good afternoon. Um, yes, that picture was taken last week. And, you know, I don't believe in coincidences. I believe in miracles. And um, I met up with our very own Cheryl Granger. Uh, she was in the photograph, uh, Dr. David Cartland, who many of our audience will know, um, and also Dr. Liz Evans from UK um, Medical Freedom Alliance. And today's guest Dr. Chris Flowers. Um, Dr. Chris Flowers is overseeing and coordinating 3,500 volunteer researchers analysing the released Pfizer and Moderna documents. Now, I'm hoping that many of our audience will have seen our two previous interviews with Dr. Naomi Wolf, uh, What Pfizer Knew, and also Amy Kelly, uh, The Angel with Clout, um, where they talk about the release of the documents. Now, Dr. Chris Flowers is a retired associate professor of radiology at the University of South Florida. He was previously an associate professor of radiology and biomedical imaging at the University of California, San Francisco. He's also a retired academic, cancer radiologist, author, and scientific paper re reviewer for multiple radiology journals. And I have to say that means he's an expert in clinical trials. Not only that, but during our encounter, we found out that we both trained at the same time in the same hospital at the Royal Free. So we are both Royal Freers. And he brought with him um, his amazing book that they've, they've compiled at the Daily Clout, uh, the Pfizer Documents Analysis Reports. And you can find Dr. Flowers on Substack at a bunch of flowers. And I'm just going to do no more than to say welcome, Dr. Flowers, number one, back to the UK, and number two, to the UK column. We're so glad to have you here, and you oversee 3,500 researchers. Please introduce yourself and tell us, how did you get into doing this, and what kind of army of experts are you overseeing? Wow, uh, thank you very much, Debbie, for that intro. Um, the um, really, I start off. I was a, a consultant radiologist, radiologist in uh, Swansea, and leading the uh, West Wales Breast Cancer Screening Program as part of Breast Test Wales, and uh, involved in clinical trials both for screening and also for cancer treatment. As I eventually became the sort of one of the leads in the uh, cancer network for West Wales, so I've got a lot of history both in clinical trials uh, and in 
sort of balancing out the risks versus harms, which is one of the most important things um, when you're talking about a public health intervention. And that's what the vaccine was. Basically, it's a public health intervention in well people in which you want the minimum amount of uh, harms to be done to get the maximum effect. And um, basically, as things have uh, progressed, um, it became very obvious that there were far more adverse events going on as a result of the vaccine than was being acknowledged. And the the endless, endless um, brought to you by Pfizer in the US, it's horrendous. Every single news um, segment is ends up or begins with brought to you by Pfizer. Everything is sponsored by Pfizer. There is, there's adverts everywhere about the vaccine, um, but no mention whatsoever of the potential side effects. And when we started having people suddenly dropping dead for no reason, usually healthy people, um, which we, it used to make national headlines in the days when, like, for example, there was Terry Yorath's son, who was uh, uh, Gareth Yorath. He was, um, Terry Yorath was um, the manager of Swansea City, and his son, who was young and healthy, suddenly dropped dead, and it was because he had something called a hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So that, that was something that was a hidden, uh, scary sort of thing, that happened to um, present as a sudden adult death. And this sort of thing gets reported in national news. And then you wouldn't hear anything for ages. Now we've come to the new normal where people are just dropping dead or having heart attacks and cardiac arrest, dropping down on a sports field and ending up with heart damage and often um, having not being able to return to the sport that they love. So it was very obvious to me that something was going on. And it was about almost two years ago when uh, there, was, there were rumors that they were trying to get hold of the data from the clinical trials of Pfizer. Um, then we, I thought, well, this is a wonderful opportunity to get involved in finding out exactly what went on. And we're now well over 18 months into this uh, process the FDA tried to um, hide these documents. They said, oh, it would take 55 years to produce all these documents. Then they upgraded it to 75 years. It's going to take us 75 years. We can't possibly do this. Um, you know, this is the Freedom of Information Act is what normally happens. Even in the UK, you try and get something done, and they always say, oh, we're too busy, or we haven't got enough staff, or there's too much information there to release, so we can't possibly give it out. But... We had success by judge shopping, if you like, finding a, a, a judge in North Texas and the, uh, the attorney, Aaron Siri and his law firm managed to get a freedom of access uh, through the judge uh, to release the documents by Pfizer. And as a result, we have had this um, torrent of documents which are being released, some, some of them in a hidden manner, um, so that we've now got evidence of actually what happened. We can see the documents. And seeing the documents um, makes your head blow up even more, <laughs> which is why we have 3,500 volunteers who, who took part in this and feeding me with all the information they can find out of the documents. 
and trying to sieve this down into little compartments and getting our medical teams to look at it, write them up both as reports uh, for um, that everyday folk can um, can read and understand, but also we're actually writing um, uh, manuscripts for publication, and we hopefully will have those submitted very very soon. Our responses, for example, to the original Pfizer clinical trial document that came out in the New England Journal of Medicine in December 2021, which is the reason basically that the FDA gave the go-ahead for the um, emergency use authorization to give this uh, BioNTech 162B2 to the world. Now, in, in America, that's all we've got. We've got the experimental BNT 162B2. And the only person who were given anything different, which is what you're getting, you're not getting the same uh, um, drug that we're getting, um, the military got something called Comirnaty, and that's the one that was uh, a, a different um, uh, composition, and it was the one that was released commercially. And we thought, well, maybe we could get get them on um, malfeasance, um, failure to uh, protect the population, but it turns out because this was all done through an another transaction authority, um, that this was done through the Department of Defense, and Pfizer are completely uh, in, uh, immun immun immunized, if you like. It's a bad term to use. They're, they're in, immunized against any uh, lawsuits or any, any finding of wrongdoing. Um, and that came out in the Brooke Jackson uh, trial that showed um, that that was that was that Pfizer's response is oh we didn't have to um, do a, a proper clinical trial we could do a fraudulent clinical trial it didn't matter because the government were paying paying for it anyway which is a very very weird sort of um, argument to make but it does open your eyes to the fact that this isn't just a simple big pharma thing this is something much bigger and it's with the involvement of the U.S. military and the connivance, the, um, the malfeasance, really, of the FDA and the um, CDC advisory committees, they've not done their job. And I suspect, from what I've heard, that the MHRA is very, very similar in this, in that there's, it's almost like money laundering, but it's big pharma yes. laundering, giving you things exactly. you shouldn't have yeah i'm i'm i have to i have to say um i i should add at this point too that two things actually that we're going dr flowers we have got so much to talk about including turbo cancer myocarditis and i know that you are going to be staying with us for exclusively for extra and i know that i'm going to be touching on these so thank you so much but i think it's also important to note that the data that the, that you're looking at the thousands the millions of documents that you're looking at are the same documents that that the mhra are looking at and just before you go dr flowers on the main news could you show everybody the copy of the book of the pfizer documents so that everyone can see it just before we say goodbye and thank you there we go the Pfizer Documents Analysis Report. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Flowers. I know that we've got a lot more to talk about and we'll be joining Dr. Flowers again in extra. Okay, Dr. Flowers, thank you very much for that. Debbie, thank you. And of course, we look forward to uh, discussing things 
excuse me, discussing things in more detail in extra time. Uh, well, the uh, critical thing for the UK column, if you like what we're doing, please join us. Uh, that enables you to join in the community, talk to other people and share information, which is always good. Uh, it's always great if you will visit our shop and perhaps make a purchase as that helps support us in a financial way, which is very, very important. And uh, we like to think the information from the news is getting out as far and wide as possible. So we share it with you. Please, will you share it with other people? Because the aim of the game is to get it going as far as it possibly can. Now, I just wanted to say that we've had some really good uh, feedback on David Scott's interview with Katie Hopkins. Laughter is infectious. Uh, this is up on the UK column website. We've had many comments coming back in. This one from Graham said, just wanted to say how much I enjoyed and appreciated David Scott's interview with Katie Hopkins. What a wonderful, entertaining, principled and inspiring lady she is. She's been such an incredible well of positivity and defiance during the last few years. And we understand this is people reacting to positive news because we're well aware that the reality of the news on a daily basis in UK can be pretty dark. But there's also some laughter. A few days ago, I interviewed Clive DeCarl on Health Matters. Um, very interesting interview. Great to speak to him after quite a long time, um, after quite a long time of not speaking to him. And uh, he's uh, also doing this event in Glastonbury. This is uh, Saturday, the 19th of August. And uh, have a look at his website, clivedecarl.com, for tickets. Uh, but this is connected with uh, lifting the mood. Now, Debbie's got uh, a blog here, Debbie Evans' blog, Their Terrifying Plan. She's commenting on the book by Dr. Vernon Coleman, amongst other things. Debbie, have you got anything you want to add very quickly? Uh, very quickly, uh, LK99 VX548. Uh, what is VX548? And also in my blog, Medically Assisted Deaths. And are you willing to travel to another country for your treatment? Because you will be expected to. Okay, lovely. Thank you very much for that. Now, uh, a big thank you to uh, Jane, who sent us a card for our new home a new studio home and a donation. It was very kind of you. Thank you very much. And I'm using this, the opportunity to thank other people making us donations. Uh, we can only do what we do with your support. And it's really wonderful that there are so many generous people out there. So thank you for that. We're getting more and more uh, emails coming into the UK column with information and comments and uh, uh, analysis in some cases. Uh, this little one came through from John and he said, please, will you pay attention to what's happening with the asylum seekers in Wales and uh, SOSPAN.Wales. Uh, now, I'm going to say we did report on this a little while back, but we will try and focus in again. We know it's important. If there's anybody involved in that area who can speak to us direct, that would be very good. And then we had this email in talking about the no prey zones and saying that uh, they remember the segment from the UK column news about no prayers, uh, a lady arrested outside the abortion centre in Birmingham. Well, well, they're pointing at another story here. Uh, this is to do with Bournemouth and uh, the report was made in the Daily Skeptic. Headline looks like you've had a bit much, to, sorry, you've had a bit too much to think, sir. And uh, what was the meat of this? Well, a man who, uh, a former uh, 
soldier, uh, Af Afghan veteran, uh, stopped to pray on the street, but of course he was in the wrong place in the so-called censorship zone. And uh, this has brought him into trouble. Uh, a comment here from the article says, the introduction of buffer zones across five local councils, soon to be rolled out across the country at the behest of the Conservative government under the Public Order Act 2023. We think this is very serious because it's so draconian. And of course, the Tories fully behind uh, the stopping of people praying. I've got another one here, which I had to mention. I can't read it all because there's too much, uh, but it's some really lovely comment uh, from Gabe, who is in uh, New York's uh, New York State, uh, up, sorry, upstate New York. And uh, there's comment on interviews with the architect Leon Creer and also Gemma Cooper, former BBC. And then there's some excellent discussion and some names and some requests that we might contact people. So this is all uh, nice, upbeat stuff. Now, where does that take us? Well, it takes us on to the subject to Ukraine. And I'm going to say a few people have said to us, UK Column is spending quite a lot of time on Ukraine. But I think this is absolutely right, because if you think of the basics, if uh, we end up that the West has achieved its aim in Ukraine um, and Russia has been defeated, Putin deposed, um, who is going to be safe in the world from that Western machinery? Because the next target is China. But uh, strange things are happening on the battlefield, and clearly the UK Ministry of Defence is very nervous. Uh, this is their report. I'm going to paraphrase it. If you have a look at it, it's all to do with small-scale combat. Let's make this really simple. Uh, we're in supposedly the final stage of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, thousands and thousands of men have died in this already. But where are we now? Small scale combat and skirmishes because the Ukrainians are not making progress against the Russian uh, defences. And uh, we have almost no reporting on the deaths on the Ukrainian side. So I'm going to say that those figures are focusing in around uh, over 300,000 to possibly as many as 400,000. And this is dead we are talking about. Um, but uh, the BBC and the, U and the UK Ministry of Defence doesn't want to mention it. Um, I've got this little video clip because aside from the fighting on the battlefield, uh, the Russians have carried out some immense and very accurate strikes on facilities uh, in the hinterland of uh, Ukraine. Uh, this is... Um, Dnitro Provovsk, where the, uh, the Russians launched several missile strikes that were very high precision on military f facilities, including that of Ukrainian drone productions. And as you'll see from the size of the uh, explosions and the fact that in just a few seconds, uh, there are explosions within meters of each other. Um, you can see the uh, tenacity of the Russian attack. Uh, meanwhile, we've sent our best military men to uh, speak to the Ukrainians, and it's our old friend, the UK Chief of Defence Staff, Radikin, who's been visiting Ukraine, and he's been discussing, <coughs> excuse me, discussing the counteroffensive. Um, I suspect he won't be talking about cluster munitions, which the West have supplied, and Ukraine is now saturating the battlefield and civilian areas with these weapons. Uh, but this was the statement from the Ukrainian uh, General Zaluzhny. He said that the meeting was constructive, 
we worked at one of the command posts. Admiral Radikin was familiar, familiarized in detail with the situation on the battlefield and with our offensive and defensive actions. We discussed the urgent needs of the Ukrainian army, and that is because they've made no progress, so they're after more weapons. I thanked our partners for their support. We continue the fight against the Russian aggressor until victory. Well, all of that sounds wonderful, but let's have a look at how um, Radikin is conducting the military in UK. And here's this report, which is truly astonishing from the Mail. It says that the army has sparked a feminist backlash after the first transgender soldier uh, to serve on the front line takes part in panel discussion about women in leadership. And not surprisingly, women in the army deeply concerned about this. And uh, I'll leave our viewers and listeners to think about the implications and the fine photo that we've just shown on screen. But this gets deeper because, of course, this rot is now taking place inside Ukraine itself. And uh, Debbie, you picked up this uh, article. Uh, Ukraine military has a new transgender spokesperson. And this is uh, the Kiev Post reporting that Sarah Ashton Kirillo has become one of the speakers of the defense forces. So we can see the Western agenda being driven deep into not only Ukrainian society, but also the military itself. And um, uh, there's details here on screen about this. Uh, but it says that over the last month, as my role has evolved from a zero-line infantry soldier to one of the public voices of the armed forces of Ukraine, I've become ever more grateful for that strength, she said. Uh, Ashton uh, Cirillo arrived to Ukraine in March 2022, soon after Putin began his invasion of the country in February. She initially worked in the country as a reporter, leading USA Today. Uh, uh, sorry, leading USA Today to refer to her as the world's first openly transgender war correspondent. Um, Alex, we got uh, a few uh, a few minutes uh, available to us. Um, this is no accident that these agendas are being unleashed inside the UK military, but also inside Ukraine. And of course, we know that the West has been burying into all aspects of Ukrainian society um, ever since really the, uh, uh, the troubles in Ukraine. What's your thoughts? I think the, the key node there is Ashton Cyrilo being appointed most recently by the armed forces of Ukraine as one of, not the, as has been misreported by some, but one of the soldier spokespersons uh, for the armed forces because uh, it's hard to argue that that is done in any other way than to say we are aping the Brits and the Americans who do this sort of thing. And you just outlined how. We don't have time to get into the Ashton Cirillo saga. Thank you particularly to Patrick Henningsen, our close colleague, for his, uh, I think, bringing many people's attention to this person, first of all, who joined as a US correspondent, signed up with the, the troops, interesting change of loyalty, uh, started ranting and raving about the fascists, uh, screaming at war memorials, and in a very Fahrenheit 451 twist, uh, announced the recapture and uh, uh, and uh, charging of uh, Gonzalo Lira, the very same uh, correspondent in Kharkiv, whom he slash she had been calling on the Ukrainian sec secret services, the SBU, to track down on Twitter, while a journalist and a regular rank-and-file soldier. Uh, the chances of that not being an engineered situation is statistically zero to me. Um, 
Now, as for manipulation of the agenda in Britain, uh, we now have an SNP member of parliament in Westminster to thank for the latest uh, talking point coming from the uh, independent, well, it's it's coming from uh, the Intelligence and Security Committee de facto because he's one of their members. Uh, he represents, well, it, it's, it's, it's wrong to say that he represents the SNP there. That's the, the Herald's spin. Let's bring the piece on screen. The Herald, the Scottish title, uh, has this title, Truth Tsar Calls, which means people want a truth tsar amid existential threat to democracy and the existential threat in inverted commas. This is Owen Thompson, uh, quite a young member of parliament for Midlothian, was once Scotland's youngest elected councillor. Um, the Herald, although not a nationalist title, spins him as Scotland's voice on the ISC. This is one of the most powerful and secretive committees in Parliament. Uh, he says that MPs' disinformation, so parliamentarians saying things off message, is as serious as these actors like Russia that we're all told to be bothered about. He's billed here as SNP chief whip until December. Uh, there seems to be some kind of job share going on. I'll show details in a moment uh, because uh, Brendan O'Hara was last time I looked, including on Wikipedia, was the SNP whip. Uh, but he's now the whip, which means he keeps the rest of the MPs contingent for the SNP at Westminster in order. He now says there's an existential threat to democracy. Don't they all use that word? And the solution is that there should be a, a cross-party consensus. The Americans would call that bipartisan to fact check members of parliament, punish them, and force them to correct the record. He also says that the so-called archaic idea that you can't call a fellow, fellow member a liar on the floor of the House should be scrapped. The SNP have a particular beef, of course, because of a recent statement about migration by a British government minister. And here's the, the nub of what is completely unconstitutional here. Mr. Thompson says that there is a responsibility, which I argue he's invented from whole cloth, a responsibility on members of parliament to say, we'll absolutely stick to facts. These would be other people's facts. A commissioner's facts, you know, the, the the right facts, not the wrong facts. The public needs these mechanisms, and the the holder of his proposed role could be a truth czar, an independent fact checker. Just look at the term fact checker in UKcom.org to see what the problem is there, or regulator of fact. Uh, whatever the eventual title, it would hold MPs accountable. Uh, so, if you're wondering just how wrong this is, well, first of all, um, let's go to Angus McNeil, one of the SNP MP contingent. He's no longer an SNP MP. Uh, he fell out with them uh, this summer and has now been booted out of the party and says they don't care about his Scottish independence. That is worth mentioning uh, because who was the chief whip then, as the Spectator reports? It was Brendan O'Hara, not Owen Thompson. Uh, and so he was the one who had the, the bust up with O'Hara, who, who seethed and seethed, you're a small wee man. So things not looking good there. But the SNP has got establishment enough now to call for uh, MPs not to discharge their fiduciary duty and not to do the very thing we appoint them to, uh, which is to express opinions and feelings and a sense of justice. That's the very thing they're meant to be there for. We'll have more articles on that in future, of course. It's a major reporting strand of ours. We already have a dissident's guide to the Constitution, uh, which goes into this in depth, go to series from our top menu uh, to see what's going on there. But this is one of the worst things I've heard a parliamentarian ever say at Westminster, uh, and I'm a bit unsurprised that it's an SNP man who should be picked to say it. Um, now, a lot of our leads come from viewers who look at the small print of government announcements, particularly tenders for provision of services. And thank you to the viewers who spotted these. One is new to me, as far as I'm aware. I would gladly be corrected by other viewers if it's not. But this is, I think, the first time that the Cabinet Office, at the heart of the British government, literally and figuratively, has called for media monitoring for domestic British news. Media monitoring is, of course, a, an idea in the most spook-facing part of the BBC, 
um, and also the BBC itself has, has, has uh, or the government itself has got media monitoring for foreign news to see what the foreigners are saying about Britain and about themselves. But this, if we look at the detail, the purpose of this tender is to ensure that communications are underpinned by effective media monitoring. That means making sure that the Times and the BBC said what we told that they should told them to say. And His Majesty, no apostrophe S yes there, the Treasury Communications team intend to procure an online platform which this contractor is then going to stuff with what people have said about British government policy. They can't even capitalise TV in this. It's rather uh, interesting. Uh, and the nominal value of the contract is one pound, which I take to understand that uh, it's very preliminary uh, so far. The British government also has got this migrant rent deposit scheme, just to really a call to our viewers to help us elucidate what's going on. The page in question here you'll find in show notes is very preliminary and says that at the end of the month there'll be more detail. But the agency chosen to deliver this pilot project would be to match refugee households based in England and Wales with custodial rent deposits held by the tenancy deposit scheme and to provide additional support to assist with tenancy sustainment. Is this topping up the rent for refugees who can't pay? I would love to be corrected if I'm wrong about that. Uh, further detail is that funds not drawn upon at the end of the tenancy will remain within the scheme to assist further refugee households through the pilot. And there's a stipulation that I think 30% of them have to be Ukrainians. So um, wonder what's going on there. I'm sure some of our viewers in the system will know, and it would be very welcome if they could tell us. Uh, here's the final bit then. Yes, there we are. Pilot assumptions are that um, circa £240,000 over three years for direct delivery costs. Uh, and on that slide is also uh, the, the requirement that a minimum of 30% of the overall target must be displaced people from Ukraine. OK, Alex, thank you very much. It, it's always good, isn't it, to keep an eye on these contracts because a lot of information comes from that contract trail. So if anybody can help us get back in contact with the UK column. Well, that brings us to the subject of electric vehicles. They're everywhere, including on forest tracks as people bring their electric powered bikes through uh, what are basically walking paths. Um, but uh, big problems, Debbie. Yes, and you know, we've been talking about electric vehicles and lithium ion batteries for quite a while. So I'm not going to make any apologies for bringing this subject up again. And we always ask our audience, please share our material. And I do believe that this, this whole, whole agenda of lithium ion batteries is one that we need to be warning all our friends and family about because there's not a day pretty much that goes by, including today. So on the front page of Sky just today um, is a story of um, a, a blown up electric bike. But let's look at this one in the Express just a few days ago um, after an electric car caught fire whilst charging its battery in Mallorca. Now, now this isn't this isn't just the UK. This is global. And here we've got another one which took place in Auckland, uh, a house on fire uh, when it was being charged in its garage. And this is not just cars. This is electric vehicles of all kinds. And so we'll go back to scooters. Now, the fire brigade are warning about charging e-bikes and e-scooters. It's not just charging them, but it's actually how you charge them. Are people following the guidelines? It seems as though they might not. They're warning that you shouldn't charge these overnight or prolong charge them. It's really very serious. Um, ITVX um, just covered a story too on an absolute tragedy where a faulty electric bike was likely to have caused a Leicester house fire. 
which has left two people in hospital. Um, this is incredibly serious. And an article in Electric explains actually that they are desperately trying to fight against people repairing their own electric bikes because they're saying that these lithium ion batteries they're extremely complex and they require specialized knowledge and specialized equipment. And of course, there you see um, just on that previous slide, there was a, a little comment by Best Regards Apple Inc. And I just want to remind people that cell phones, tablets and laptops are much more complex than an e-bike and they all contain dangerous lithium batteries too. So they would all need to be excluded from a, a, a list of right to repair products. So this is what they're trying to do, say that these must not be repaired unless they're repaired professionally. But one further from that, a charity is now saying that the government should regulate e-bike regulate e batteries and basically treat e-bike batteries like fireworks. I mean, that is how dangerous they are. The charity is Electrical Safety First, and they've brought out um, a new report, and it's called the Battery Breakdown Report. I think you might have a next slide on it, um, Electrical Safety First, that's it. Um, and you'll see that's the Battery Breakdown Report, and it says there is growing concern over the rise in fatalities, injuries, and devastating fires from electric bikes and electric scooters. Tragically, in the first three months of 2023 alone, fires from lithium batteries used to power these devices had already taken four lives in the UK, left others hospitalized or seriously injured, and caused extensive damage. To property. Um, that's just a blow up of, um, there's a, an, another slide just of a blow up of that slide, but this is the front page of the report and it's it's startling. The, re the revelations inside it are absolutely startling. They talk about things like thermal runways and I've just put um, a slide with a little explanation as to what a thermal runway is. I won't go into it now. You can freeze, freeze the screen and read it. But I think that quote on the right is very important. We must work together to ensure that consumers understand the risks and make informed decisions as such. Con consumer engagement is a central theme throughout the report and an area in which we believe electrical safety first has a key role to play. And I cannot I cannot emphasize this more. If any of you are thinking about purchasing any electrical vehicle, such as an e-car e or an e-bike or an e-scooter, um, please check first and warn other people that these fires are occurring regularly. And now it's become so serious that actually MPs are saying that perhaps these e-bikes and uh, should have number plates and insurance um, because of the damage. And it's not just the damage from fires, but people are colliding. One e-bike uh, rider collided with an ambulance. So they're incredibly dangerous on the road. So more legislation, but please put the warnings out there because not a day goes past and I'm not seeing some tragedy that could have been avoided through a lithium iron battery fire. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. And I'll just add into that, uh, I had uh, communication from the AA. Uh, I haven't had time to go into the actual uh, brochure itself, but you get the gist pretty quickly. You've got the power 
your EV myth-busting guide from the AA. So the AA clearly here pushing electronic vehicles, be electric vehicles, be interesting to see what they talk about fire risks. But let's come on to the subject of traffic. And uh, this was sent to me, the image caught my eye, it's from the Telegraph, and you look at this, what on earth is it? Uh, well, this is uh, Paynton, um, English Riviera, so uh, Devon seaside town, and uh, they've put in this remarkable colouring on the road in a crossing which is apparently being called the Golden Mile to Legoland. So local people have picked up on this and they've said, what on earth is it? Is it a distraction from the potholes? Uh, but basically, for me, it's Torbay Council saying the public are children uh, and we can make up the highway code. Because if we look at some of the comments, now, as usual, the spokesperson was anonymous. So I've attributed this to the uh, chief executive. She must hold ultimate responsibility. With increased traffic at this junction, the surface contrast provides greater clarity for road users and pedestrians, ensuring all road, road users can use the space safely. The red is to remind motorists as they approach the junction to slow down and think, should I be driving through here before proceeding to turn slowly at the junction? This is the applied psychology I think she's referring to. The blue is better to define the car carriage, carriageway, I think she means, for pedestrians and to reflect some of the placemaking ambitions for a permanent scheme. So that's the word soup, uh, but very unattractive. Uh, does it meet the highway code? Does it confuse drivers? Does the local authority care if people are upset? A lot of questions to be asked about that. And uh, uh, Alex, that brings us over to you. And it appears that things in Germany now are so serious, they're simply going to get rid of opposition parties. Indeed, Brian. Uh, Debbie's segment there on e-bikes reminds me of uh, my childhood 40 years ago and the Sinclair C5 with what's now Sir Clive Sinclair designing these uh, battery-powered bikes. At the time, we were told they failed uh, because of a to-do over people being uh, low down in the traffic uh, fume zone uh, of the road and not being easily seen by other vehicles, uh, drivers. Uh, but Mike Robinson has just reminded me that there was also a big concern on BBC about the insurance requirement for these vehicles. And of course, if you go to insurance, it's the same with uh, injections, uh, allegedly to prevent COVID. You'll often find the insurers know a lot more detail than is publicly allowed uh, to, to get out as to why uh, they require insurance. Could it be that there was an inherent fire risk with the uh, the types uh, of cell that were that were in, in the vehicle. Now, just quickly then on Alternative für Deutschland, our regular viewers know that the establishment is moving to ban it. Der Spiegel in its panorama imprint uh, has uh, a report on an, uh, an attack uh, on a, a local politician. He's actually the chairman of the um, uh, AFD section of the uh, city council of Augsburg in Bavaria, not a small city, Andreas Jurka, a man in his 30s, uh, we'll just put on uh, the image here of what he looked like prior to his attack. This is the, how um, the Spiegel has illustrated him because they don't want, I think, to rouse sympathy for him by showing him showing what happened after he was set upon. Uh, it was something like half a dozen against two in a nighttime uh, alleyway attack. So um, although it's behind a paywall, Juma Freiheit, which is obviously a title sympathetic to AFD, um, has brought this out, showing uh, incredibly... Uh, uh, painful looking black eyes that he can't open. And the title of this piece is The Remarkable or Odd Things 
about Andreas Jurka's case. So they, they think there's possibly some political intimidation going on there. More generally, the rhetoric has been, well, you see, there's, there's such a toxic atmosphere that uh, these, these local men, possibly migrants, may have got uh, you know, annoyed and gone and sought the most prominent AFD man they could find to set upon and, and leave half dead. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, Der Spiegel, in its political rubric, is doing uh, left-hand, right-hand work. Uh, because here, they've got their editorial, the leading article by Dietmar Hip, and this is quite a, a big shake. This is you know, a, a very um, upmarket German title that the whole establishment reads. And it says, it's time to forbid, to ban these enemies of the Constitution, which uh, is the same word used in the, the title of Germany's domestic security service, the Faschungsschutz. So they're strongly hinting that the German uh, secret services will take the correct Der Spiegel-friendly decision and ban the party, which they are making noises about, as I've reported recently. And the byline there is that AFD has become uh, more and more radical, and uh, it's now time to defend democracy. Ah, think of Owen Thompson again with sharper weapons. And uh, just on the end of this segment, Eugupius, a German ex-academic who reports very thoughtfully from his own country, um, he doesn't take a completely conspiratorial line on things. His recent blogs have mellowed in that position, but uh, I think peerless analysis in many areas points out that Germany is chaotic, nothing works. Foreigners don't really understand this about Germany. It's collapsed in many ways, particularly since Merkel left the scene. And here he makes the prescient point, really, that the Germans don't have enough goons to go, uh, if they did ban the AFD, to go and lock everyone up who, uh, who joined the AFD for valid reasons. A fifth of the population would like to vote for them. And if you did, you would just find migration to a series of splinter parties or revival AFD parties that would be careful not to tread the same uh, red lines again. And Oigupius ends up saying that they can't police millions of people, which I think if it's true of Germany, it's true of lesser goon states like Britain as well. Um, so without prosperity, Oigupius concludes, bland consumerist Western regimes have very little appeal. In other words, they're just going to have to use the, the mind tricks and threaten to ban these people because there's nothing more left to throw at us. Uh, Alex, pretty incredible, <coughs> excuse me, overall, that uh, we're, we're getting the finger pointed, of course, anybody challenging the government, if that's over social media, that's got to be crushed. And in Germany, at least, we've now got a finger pointed straight at the opposition parties. This, this is dictatorship. Well, people are saying that it is dictatorship. I have a viewer now from Spain who responded to my lead segment last week, Taylor Hudak's report on uh, the EU bringing in this media monitoring board uh, to make sure that people pre-censor before they're allowed to upload to the likes of YouTube. Uh, and the question arising there was, am I breaking this new law if I share UK column material? So I referred that to the authoress, Taylor Hudak, and she and I and another lawyer friend agreed, no, that's not the focus. So nothing to be panic about immediately. But the reason why it's not a focus is because they're going upstream. They want it to be uh, impossible for you ever to get UK column type material in Germany, Spain, or even Britain outside the EU now. So that's why they're focusing the penalties on the media people and not on the individuals. OK, Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, it's beholden on everybody to stand up and do what they can to fight back against this. And of course, we're always encouraging people to do what they feel comfortable with, but in a reasonable way. We'll end just on this one uh, a slide here, which is from Money. Uh, the headline is families face the spectre of a £13,000 tax bill if they inherit a pension. And uh, I couldn't help feeling that this really sums up the ruthlessness of the government because uh, here you are being taxed, or at least your relatives being taxed 
beyond the grave. And uh, when we do the next news on Friday, we're going to follow through on matters to do with banking uh, because it's quite clear that the banks are becoming more and more overt in their, uh, in their intent to take control of your money. Uh, but we'll leave it there with tax beyond the grave. Um, Alex and Debbie and uh, Dr Flowers, I'm going to say thank you very much for joining UK Column News today. If you're a subscriber, in a few minutes' time, we'll have UK Column Extra and there'll be more time and questions with Dr. Flowers, so that's going to be really interesting. Otherwise, a huge thank you to all our supporters, wherever you are in the world. And we can only do what we do uh, with your support. So thank you very much. We will see you at the same time on Friday.